Al Jazeera podcast. Thirteenth October, three a.m. in the morning. We just got a text message saying that the people of Gaza city should evacuate their homes quickly to the south, the southern governance of Gaza Strip. Leave or face death. That's the choice now facing Gazans, including Yumna El-Sayed, a journalist for Al Jazeera. On Friday, the Israeli army told more than a million people in the north of Gaza that they have 24 hours to go. I'm just looking around. What can I carry for four kids? What can I take with me? What will I need? Is it clothes? Is it emergency medicine? Is it, I don't know, is it food? I just feel so lost. I'm just sitting like that in the bedroom. As the deadline expires on Saturday, Israeli troops are on the cusp of a massive ground invasion. An invasion that they've been preparing for since October 7th, when Hamas launched an unprecedented attack. That attack is being described as a massive failure for a country touted to have some of the best intelligence in the world. So, where was the Israeli intelligence? And how did that same intelligence inform Israel's decision to invade Gaza now? I'm Kevin Hurton, in from Alika Bilal, and this is The Take. Eventually, Yumna did decide to leave with her family, as she explained on Al Jazeera English TV. It was actually a very difficult decision to take my family and my kids with me and find other people who would make this journey under the bombardment. Now, we did take this decision because we did not want to risk, but uh, the bombardment hasn't uh, yet stopped. And they took the route advised by the Israeli military. We had to take the decision to evacuate from Gaza City. I didn't want to risk my children. My husband and I decided that this is the best thing to do, since it's what they asked us to do. At least if something happens, we're going to be conscious free that we followed every instruction and we did everything that we could to keep our kids safe. And like everyone in Gaza, she's still not sure how this will end. So, why is this happening now? What was the intelligence that led to this decision? Oren Ziv is a photojournalist and a reporter with 972 Magazine, a joint Israeli-Palestinian media outlet. We talked to him before Israel warned every person in the north of Gaza that they had 24 hours to leave their homes. He was still trying to process what had happened until that point. I have to be honest, we were not expecting uh, this kind of thing. I think not only the Israeli public was surprised, but also as journalists that we follow very closely the situation. 
we didn't believe this would happen. His job is to cover this kind of thing. And on October 7th, as soon as he heard about Hamas's attack, he drove straight to the scene in southern Israel. It took us a while to, to get there. And what he saw when he arrived was like nothing he'd ever seen before. Normally, Oren says, the police and army forces respond very quickly. But this time was different. It was a shocking scene, but it was also a confusing one, he says. How did they not have any intelligence of this kind of operation that took, according to some sources, two years to prepare? Early on October 7th, Israel's intelligence failures were obvious, Oren says. The fence with Gaza is secure. It's one of the most expensive fences in the world. It cost uh, a few billions to repair it and renovate it and uh, put all the technology in it. It has an underground concrete wall under it. It has cameras. It has systems that can automatically be operated from far, from distance and shoot uh, towards people who uh, get nearby. Obviously, there's some uh, surveillance from uh, the sky and from watchtowers. And yet, unknown numbers of Hamas fighters breached that fence. So the first question is, how did Hamas do it? According to witnesses uh, that spoke to Israeli media, uh, it seems that in the command base in the area, they couldn't get information. And also the base itself was attacked uh, right in the beginning, so they could not pass information forward on to the airplanes, to the helicopters. But even all that, Oren says, is not a full explanation. Because it's a much uh, a bigger issue. And it's an issue that's drawing questions about Israel's intelligence from around the world. Did the Benjamin Netanyahu government take its eye off the ball? Israel and Israeli intelligence seem to be caught totally unaware. As somebody put it to me yesterday, Israeli intelligence knows when Hamas members move from the bedroom to the bathroom, so how could they pull this off? Oren says the Israeli military, also known as IDF, has responded to those questions. He's just not sure the answers are enough. What the IDF spokesperson tells me is that these are very serious questions and they have to give answers to the public mostly to the Israeli public, but they say they first have to secure the safety of the residents, finish uh, the fighting, and then they will move to, to doing this, to, to, to answer all these hard questions. I, in one hand, I agree with that. On the other hand, I think it's also a way to postpone this discussion that is very important for people to understand Hugh Lovett has also been trying to answer these questions. And the answer to one of them, he thinks, is clear. Yes, there's an intelligence failure. He's a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations based in London. I've been working on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict now for over a decade, looking at the, the peace process, lack thereof, um, leading some track two initiatives, working very uh, deeply in, on Palestinian politics, uh, Gaza, regional dynamics. He also thinks that Israel's intelligence is seen as the best in the world. Spies throughout the Middle East going back decades, very advanced capabilities, 
in terms of cyber espionage, much of which has been subsequently marketed and sold, such as the Pegasus spyware, listening posts and, and other things and working very closely with the CIA and other intelligence agencies. But despite all of that, in some ways, Hugh wasn't surprised by what he saw on October 7th. We know, and this because this has been leaked and made public over the past year and more, that there was an issue to do with IDF readiness. Units didn't have the right equipment. They were not uh, on sort of as alert as they should be and as ready as they should be. And this was, I think there's been several audits, several inspections of the IDF that are routinely done and reported this. So this government has failed to act on that, uh, which I think would be a huge problem. Meanwhile, he says some of Hamas's preparations were out there to see. Hamas has been training out in the open for a lot of these things. And we, a lot of people knew that Hamas had some of these capabilities or a lot of these capabilities. Because when it tests its rockets, it fires them into the Mediterranean Sea from Gaza. It uh, conducts lots of its training exercise out in the open. So I think the, the, the failure was more that, yes, perhaps those training exercises were seen, but it, two and two weren't put together and there wasn't an understanding that all that training was going to lead to such a big unprecedented operation different from anything that's come before. And then there were all the warnings. There have been a number of Israeli intelligence warnings to the government, which have also been made public, saying that uh, Israel's enemies may seek to, to test Israel at this moment in time because of the internal divisions within Israel. Did Israel ignore vital intelligence from Egypt? Did Israel's security agencies underestimate Cairo's repeated warnings? As the world watches the Israel-Hamas war, a senior Egyptian intelligence officer has made a startling revelation. He claims that Jerusalem ignored multiple warnings on a potential Hamas strike. Mohanad Sabri is from Egypt. He's been looking at Egypt, Israel, and Gaza for years. The bulk of his work has been focused on the Sinai Peninsula, south of Israel. I specialize in uh, Egypt's military security, terrorism, and counterterrorism, uh, specifically the Sinai Peninsula. I'm currently a scholar at King's College's Defense Studies Department and the School of Security Studies, and I'm based in London. And he says Egypt has always had better intelligence on Gaza than Israel. Egypt certainly has uh, has always enjoyed better uh, human intelligence assets operating on the ground in Gaza because they have uh, historical decades-long uh, relations directly with the, with the Palestinians in general. And uh, hence, Egypt remains the only capable direct mediator between both parties because Egypt's intelligence is on the ground in Gaza. This is something that has never stopped, even uh, through the worst times of war like we're seeing now. An Egyptian intelligence official told the Associated Press, Cairo had repeatedly warned Israelis, quote, something big was being planned from Gaza. Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, publicly denied that report. But then, in the U.S., there was a different statement out of Congress. A leading Republican lawmaker, Michael McCall, the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, said, we know that Egypt gave Israel a warning three days out. And Mohanad agrees it does seem like, at the very least, what Egypt knew or didn't know is going to be a very big deal. We keep hearing reports from uh, all sides, from the Israelis, the Europeans, the Americans, and we will continue to hear reports like this. But we have to differentiate between uh, 
actual feasible reports coming from military and intelligence sources and official reports and the highly politicized uh, reports based on uh, uh, political interest. And this is in the case of Netanyahu is the number one politicized rhetoric right now. But Mohanad also puts this into historical perspective. Egypt and Israel coordinate and communicate, but it's never been a matter of public statements or discussions. Both states have maintained decades of not publicizing their relations or their interactions so they don't embarrass each other on their different ends. And in situations like today, this is a vivid example of how that dynamic works. After the break, Israel's approach to intelligence and its ramifications. Why the so-called best intelligence in the world can also be the worst. On the Inside Story podcast, as Israel's bombardment of Gaza continues with steadfast support from the West, where do Russia, China and India stand? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Anthony Lowenstein. I'm an independent journalist, author of the Palestine Laboratory, and I was based in East Jerusalem between 2016 and 2020. The reason the book is called The Palestine Laboratory is that I examine that the tools and technologies that Israel has used to repress Palestinians and occupy them for over half a century are tested and trialled in Palestine on Palestinians, and then they're so-called battle-tested Battle-tested is one of those marketing terms that Israel uses to sell this technology. And for Israel, that Palestine laboratory has created something. It has an, there's an illusion of security, but in fact there's not. There's profound insecurity. And for Palestinians, it's brought something else entirely. According to one former general, Israel has become the world champions of occupation, turning it, in his words, into an art form. Um Temer lives with her family just outside of Hebron's old city in the occupied West Bank. She says a few years ago, Israeli soldiers forced their way into her home to install surveillance equipment on her roof. We aren't really living a life here because of this pressure on us. Because it doesn't feel like living to be in our homes. We feel like we're living our lives on the street. Guests don't want to visit our homes. For holidays, they don't come visit us. My family is afraid to visit my home. You can feel the pressure on us from every direction. The settlers from one direction and the cameras from the other. Whenever we go and tell Romeda, we feel like we're being watched. We're always watched, no matter where we are. This is no way to live. And for Antony, it's clear it hasn't brought Israel security either, especially now. Israel doesn't recognize that after the longest occupation in modern times of Palestine has not brought them peace. In fact, if anything, the occupation, the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem and the Golden Heights in the last 50 plus years has brought them profound insecurity. One retired Israeli general, Amir Avivi, told India's News 9 there are weaknesses in Israel's intelligence gathering. We have 
probably the best, uh, most advanced intelligence talking about technological capabilities. But there is a reality where the other side is adapting, adapting to these capabilities. And in this reality, you need many times to go back to the basics, to humans, to the ability to have spies, to, to infiltrate the organizations, to have uh, people in really high-ranking positions. And I think that um, we went too much to technology and forgot the basics of how you collect intelligence because at the end of the day, we're talking about humans and about the ability to adapt. But Mohaned, the Egyptian researcher, says the intelligence failure is about more than just day-to-day operations. There's also a level of condescension Military and security details sometimes are the prism through which we have to look at politics, not the other way around. This is something that uh, shall not be, uh, in any case, undermined or rather uh, looked at with condescension, which is the same way that Israel and Egypt both sometimes look at security um, topics or details. It is clear where from Israel's side that we see military commanders describing Gaza as human animals. We are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. In military terms, this is a part of the failure of intelligence and military, that once you get to a point where you naturally can descend and underestimate your adversary, regardless of where this adversary is or who they are, you begin making massive mistakes and walking blindly to a military failure, intelligence failure, like what we've seen. Israel is threatening further military action in Gaza. 300,000 Israeli reservists have been called and are on standby, with reinforcements being sent to southern Israel. And that military commander Mohaned quoted earlier is Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant. He's made it clear that a ground invasion of Gaza is the next step. We started the offensive from the air. Later on, we will start from the ground. And then bombing it like hell now. Anthony Lowenstein says a ground invasion was an inevitability. There is this seeming 110% support for allowing Israel to unleash hell on the population of Gaza. Most of whom, of course, are half the population of roughly 2.3 million uh, kids. The death toll is already high. It's going to skyrocket. But there's some little discussion about, but then what? Then what? What's the idea? And at the same time, he says, the occupation and the repression of the Palestinians that remain under Israeli control will continue. At some point, people are going to snap. And that intelligence that you have and that all the tools and technologies in the end may be, at least in 2023, I don't want to even think about what's going to be the case in 2040 or 50 with, you know, even more sophisticated intelligence gathering. But in 2023, it is still potentially impossible to keep yourself safe 24-7 if you occupy another people. But Antony says the world hasn't lost faith in Israeli intelligence, and it doesn't look like it will anytime soon. There's no doubt looking around the world with the amount of support that Israel is receiving, that the vision that Israel is selling, which namely is a hardline ethno-nationalist state, is very attractive to growing numbers of 
political elites globally, but also populations around the world. So the Palestine Lab really is something that is partly about selling weapons, but it's also more than that, selling the idea. It's also the idea of getting away with it. And I think, in fact, after last weekend's attack, that's even going to be stronger because Israel is about to unleash even greater hell on Gaza and they're going to get away with it 110%. And we all know it and there's not a damn thing we can do about it and it's utterly frustrating and enraging and much of the Western world will not just turn a blind eye, they'll cheer it on as they're doing now. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters and David Enders with Ashish Malhotra, Faranisa Kampana, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Sari El-Khalili, Sonia Bagat, Zaina Badr, and me, Kevin Hurton, in from Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 